Of those, uh, those 300-some students that will be coming are the new students. Uh, there'll be about 1,400 students altogether that will be on this campus at some time during uh, the weeks. Uh, you can always tell those 300, though, by uh, their look of lostness on campus. Um, you'll probably notice them. They'll, they're kind of wandering the hall trying to find where D-Wing is. We're also welcoming about 11 new faculty, and they'll look as lost as the, uh, as the others. So uh, for all you that are new faculty, you'll be like the, stu- the new students. Uh, you can't get to the library from the front. And uh, it's not been uncommon to find two or three students stuck at the bottom. They take the elevator down thinking they can get to the library, and then all of a sudden they're stuck in this. Everything is locked around them and there's absolutely no way for them to get out of there. And uh, so far, we haven't lost a student or a faculty member down in that kind of pit. Uh, But don't take that elevator to get down to the library. If you see a faculty member that looks lost, leave them. (laughs) But if you see a student that looks lost, walk them to where they need to go. I, I, I find the first week very, a lot of fun because you see them kind of wandering and, and you go, where are you looking? And they're not even close usually to where, and if you start going, well, you go down there and you go left and then you go right and then you go left and then you finally just say, here, I'll take you down there. Uh, that first couple of weeks is pretty critical for those people that are lost. As for the faculty, they're independent. They're, they're strong-willed. They'll find their way. But if they look lost, you should help them too. Like, Patrick, have you found your way around yet? <laughs> so, there you go. This is the chapel. And actually, if you use the chapel as your kind of compass point, your GPS point, uh, it's helpful. North of this is, is uh, over there, and south of that... <laughs> is over there, all right? So, how did I do, did I? <laughs> yeah, perfect, yeah, yeah. If you have your, uh, your telephone or your iPad or if you carry, still carry a Bible, um, I'd like you to open up to Philippians chapter three. Uh, for a number of years, in the late 90s and into the 2000s, I, was, uh, I had the privilege of teaching in a graduate program uh, in Kenya. At the same time, Carla was, uh, was developing, uh, my wife Carla, for you that don't know, uh, was uh, developing a, a, a teacher's training program for Kenyan public school teachers. And we would go over, and she would be involved in this, uh, bringing Canadian teachers over and uh, doing in-services for Kenyan uh, public school teachers. Uh, which has now developed, actually, if you remember, for some of you, we were in Kenya in May, has now become a teacher's college. So we were quite excited to be there for that celebration. Uh, But I was involved in in a a postgraduate program that was uh, helping uh, Nairobi pastors who had grown up in rural settings to to deal with with an urban context, which is the background of my, my kind of educational background. And so uh, we would spend most of the time 
uh, in those times in the slums of, of Nairobi, which became a very comfortable place. Kibera slum is the largest slum in, uh, in all of Africa. There's about two million people in this. And it's like a, well, it's like a big village in, in many ways. And, and we would, the class was a praxis experience, reflection, you know, what, what are your feelings in these kinds of environments? Most of them having come off the shambles, the farms up, up country. And it was, it was always a great time, but the food was very, that was, I mean, I still remember finding a dish rag in the teapot, uh, which I, God saved me, I'm sure, on a lot of things. But the food was kind of very kind of basic kind of thing. So once, once during those two weeks in the evening, uh, Carla and I and, and, and some of the Canadians that were with us would go to the Norfolk Hotel. So if you've seen the movie Out of Africa, the Norfolk Hotel is part of the colonial, and a lot of things happened at the Norfolk Hotel. Now, so all our experience, Carla was up country, uh, waking up to cows, mooing and roosters, and I was in Kibera slum, and we would then go to this kind of colonial hotel, and we would sit out on the, the kind of porch area, and we'd eat dinner, and we'd watch as the safari vans drove up. And everybody would get out that had been on some safari in the Nairobi game farm or something. And interestingly enough, if, I hope there's no Americans here, but American tourists, American tourists really like the, you know, the, the safari gear. And so they'd get out and they'd all have the safari gear on. Uh, the, the vests, you know, the Tilly vests and all of those kind of things. They'd look like, and they'd have the hats, you know, and they'd, and they'd get out of these Land Rovers, you know, and, and uh, they, and I would sit there and watch them as they kind of came out. And I think to myself, because I knew some of the drivers, and uh, these people would leave that city of Nairobi and they would never have seen Kibera. Uh, in urban missiology, we talk about um, uh, slums of hope and slums of despair. Kibera is a slum of hope. It's a village in the middle of the city of, of uh, Nairobi. Mathari Valley is what we call a slum of despair. It's like a descent into hell. It's just one of the hardest experiences you could ever be involved in. And to get to the game farm, normally you would have to drive by the Mathari Valley slum. But they had worked it out that n these people, these safari people, would drive through beautiful kind of colonial neighborhoods and get around the, that, and they would get to the, the end, and, they and then they would leave on the airport, and they would think they saw Kenya. And I've, I know that because I've talked, my, my cousin went on a safari and she talked about it. And, and she said, uh, I'm, I'm sending all my used clothes uh, to Kenya now. And I'm going, you obviously didn't go down to the big market because that's where all, all the used clothes end up uh, and things like that. Uh, the people in the slums need much more than used clothing. And it's then that I realized there's a difference between a tourist and a traveler. 
And, and, and I think about that when I think about the whole idea of faith and what faith means and, and, and what it means for us to be in this adventure and that lots of people, even lots of Christian organizations, churches, they choose, they choose to be tourists and, and they think they're living the adventure but they're missing all of the things that are part of what it means to be a traveler. Uh, to be a traveler means to, to, to understand that you will be inconvenienced. To, to be a traveler means that you're open to new experiences. I don't know if you know that the Hilton hotels were designed all through the world to be a taste of North America. So if you went to the Hilton in Nairobi, a friend of mine who lived in Nairobi would get mad because they wouldn't serve him the way that he was used to being served back in North America. And he says, when I come to the Hilton, I expect it to be like Moncton. Uh, tourists do not want to be inconvenienced. Tourists do not want to be made uncomfortable. Travelers understand that that's part of the journey. And that's what I love about this passage in Philippians chapter 3. We talked a little bit about this in, my, uh, in, a, in a thing we did with some of our managers and directors last week. So Paul in Philippians has just gone through uh, what some people, what some scholars say is an unpacking of a Christology, right? Like if you don't have anything else, if you have Philippians 1, 2, and 3 and a half, uh, you basically have a full uh, a Christology that you can kind of work with. He talks about the supremacy of Christ, why Christ came. Uh, he, he, he says to us, uh, let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus. And then he unpacks what that means. So you've, you've, Paul has just kind of gone through all this. And then he comes to verse uh, 12 which fascinates me. And it's like he go, it's like he slams on the brakes. Like it's bam. So he's just been telling you all about Jesus. And then he goes, bam. He slams on the brakes and he says this. Listen to what he says. Not that I've already obtained all this. Isn't that interesting? Like he's, he's talking about what Jesus has done and, and his own spiritual life and all of those things. And it's just like all of a sudden he doesn't want you to think that he's settled for something. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to think that he's become one of the comfortable, self-righteous people who think they now have it all together. Matter of fact, later on, uh, he says, he says, um, Brothers and sisters, in verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, which is, is, is almost like a, in my Bible, I always write arrows back to things. This, this arrow would go right back to Philippians chapter 2. Let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus. Not that I've already obtained this. You want to know why we can't discuss anything anymore out of difference? It's because we're now dealing with ideological fundamentalism on both the right and the left of people who think they've already obtained it. 
and they're not willing or free enough to actually enter a dialogue where they have what I call a humble sensibility that, that somehow they haven't figured it all out yet. It takes guts to not be sure. <laughs> you know? I, 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 there's some people from Demon here who are preachers. I mean, how many sermons have you preached where in the back of your mind you're going, hmm, not so sure. <laughs> you know, you, you say it confidently, but there's a part of you that, that, that just says, ah, still working on that. That's what it means, I think, to be a person of faith in the 21st century. I mean, I keep getting asked questions about Supreme Courts and Trinity Westerns and all of these kinds of things. And, and I keep saying, and attestations for summer employment and all of those kinds of things. And I keep saying, this is the world we've been given. And we need to figure out what it means for us to be people of faith in the midst of it. It's either that or stick your head in the sand and say, I've already got it figured out and you're wrong. And I'm right. And I'm not, ta I'm not talking to you. I'm not open to hearing new information from you. Uh, I'm not willing to embrace the world that God has placed them in. You, some of you have heard me talk about Psalm 137, where, he, where the psalmist says, how do I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And I believe Jeremiah 29 is the answer to the psalmist asking the question, how do I sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? And basically God says, I put you here. Now deal with it. Like he doesn't give them an option. Oh, gee, sorry you're not in Jerusalem. He says, I brought you here. This is your, you're in Babylon now. Live with it. Uh, this is the 21st century. God's put us here. This is our challenge as a university and a seminary. How do we as people of faith learn to navigate and negotiate a world in which we are challenged on an ongoing basis uh, to think through how do we keep the dialogue going and the engagement possible? So what he does is this fascinating thing, and I know I don't have time. Well, I do have a little time. Uh, he says this, listen to this. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which is Christ Jesus, that Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. There's that humility, humble sensibility. But one thing I do, and then he says this, forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead. Uh, Christian organizations, uh, people of faith, uh, dear saints, uh, churches, you name it. Uh, the big question is, are you going to live as a community of memories or are you going to live as communities of anticipation? Like, the difference is, he's not saying you should obliterate your memories. I mean, your memories... We've got spiritual formation people here, so I've got to be careful. I mean, your memories, I mean, you build out of your experiences. You were formed out of your past. 
But the difference is you don't settle. Uh, I am not what everybody used to think I was. I still remember going to the Air Canada ticket wicket and giving them my ticket in Calgary one time. This woman looked at me and she said, are you Gary Nelson? I grew up in Calgary and I said, yes. And she said, I'm Debbie Boss. I remember going, Debbie Boss, Debbie Boss, do I, did I know a Debbie Boss in my past? And she said, I was in your homeroom in high school. I said, oh, Debbie Boss, Debbie Boss. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think that all through. And, uh, and she said, I hate this question, what do you do? I said, well, it's actually not bad to say you're the president of a university. But I mistakenly said, well, I've, I've been a Baptist minister for a number of years, and now I'm a president of a Christian university and a seminary. And she goes, a what? <laughs> At the top of her voice, I still remember the, the whole airport, it felt like the whole airport went looking at this encounter, and, she, and I said, well, I'm a, I was a Baptist minister. And then she goes, a Baptist minister, at the top of her voice again. And my mother was there, uh, which was really embarrassing, because my mother's kind of going, why is she making such a big deal about this? And, and this Debbie turns to the, the ticket agent next to her, and she said, he's a Baptist minister, at the top of her voice. And, and, and then she says... You should have known him in high school. <laughs> to which my mother says, I guess I didn't know what you were like in high school. <laughs> uh, forgetting what is behind. Uh, over and over again in my life, I have found myself at times where I have, I have gone deeper, where I have grown, and stretched, where I, I, I acknowledge my past, but I know it no longer has the controls that it used to have in my life. And forgetting what is behind is, is part of, of me getting on, but having people in my life who wouldn't let me be that. Like Carla knows to this day my grade two story where I was told I was big, dumb, and clumsy. I was always big. I had a grade seven desk when I was in grade two. And um, one day I dropped something and broke it and the teacher looked at me and she said, Gary Nelson, you big, dumb, clumsy ox. That past has followed me all of my life. Even in Vienna, or in Venice, I should say, Carla said when we were in a china shop, be careful. <laughs> tied me right up. <laughs> I had a backpack on. I, you can picture all the things that might have happened with that backpack. Um, forgetting what is behind is not obliterating the past, but it's no longer giving it power. Like there are people in this context uh, who remember OBC or OTS or whatever the name was before. Well, well part of uh, they remember some of the good traditions that were part of Ballyconner. But those were good things, but 
if we lived in those things, they'd bind us to, to, to being able to look at new possibilities of what we could be and what we could do. Uh, that's the challenge for organizations. That's the challenge for people of faith. Uh, forgetting what is behind. And, and, and actually, listen to the word. Look at, listen to what he says. Straining. Like, isn't that a great word? I mean, it isn't kind of just reaching. It's straining. It's this, this active, passionate, like, it's, it's not kind of ho-hum, but it's a straining. And, and he goes on, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I don't know what your prize is. I, I am, I, I, if your prize is heaven, you need a bigger vision. Uh, because the Christian life was meant to be lived in the present. And, and too much of what we have, have kind of visualized in terms of the Christian life, it seems to me, is a hanging on. You know, I can't remember, I heard a hymn one time, this is not my... This is not my home. I'm just passing through. Thank you. Um, I hate that song. Because um, there's a sense that, that you're missing what Paul is saying here. I'm in it. And the goal, you know, I don't think the goal is heaven. I think it's the goal is to, to hear from God. Well done. You lived it out. You, you made mistakes. Gosh. Was I proud of you when you made a really big mistake, but you tried, you strained, you pressed. Like that's, I mean, to, ha to, to, have, to have someone say that to you, if you've ever had that experience where someone really important said, well done, uh, it's just, I think that's the prize. And then he goes on. All of us who are mature, which is kind of a scary phrase there, I would never like that, should take such a view of things. And if to, on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And then he says this. Join with others. But he says, I press on toward the goal. So... I uh, want you to think about that this year. Uh, unless you were one of those uh, self-righteously self-assured, uh, it would be nice of you to kind of get a few questions in your head. But for the rest of us, um, this, is the this is the adventure of faith. This is what makes it fun. And this is what makes it worthwhile. Like, if the stressing and the pressing and the forgetting and the moving on and the looking forward isn't part of this thing, then I don't know why I became a Christian at 19 coming out of a party one day. Because for me, it wasn't about my sin, although I was painfully aware of it. It was about my pointlessness of my life. I just thought, this is stupid. There's got to be something better than this. And that's when I reached for Christ. 
And then out of that has been this adventure. Like when Debbie Boss looked at me and I'm thinking, yeah, but I got to go to Kenya. Uh, this adventure of faith has, has made it all worthwhile. A few years ago, Mary Jo Letty, the Catholic theologian, and I were speaking, the plenary speakers, at a big Salvation Army uh, conference. Um, they, where they brought all their pastors and all their community workers together in the same place. And interestingly enough, it was just after September 11th. And so there was a bit of a shock, you know, as people were trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. And, uh, and Mary Jo stood up. I don't know if any of you have ever read any of her writings. She's a, she's a brilliant writer and I, I think a brilliant theologian and uh, a very prophetic voice. And she, she and I were kind of saying, talking about what are we going to say. And, and then she just kind of blew us out of the water. Uh, and she started talking about September 11th. And then she made this comment. And, and I want you to think about this when you think about what does it mean for me to be a follower of Christ. But also, if we are producing followers of faith who have mind, heart, and soul actively engaged. Uh, she, said, she stood up and she said, the future belongs to those who have nothing to lose. Isn't that a great line? Everything I said after that was just pablum to what she said. The future belongs to those who have nothing to lose. Um, it's either that or a pasteurized faith that cannot stand the test of culture, a cultural challenge, that cannot stand the test of questions. Uh, it is either a future that we have nothing to lose in and everything to gain. I think that's what Paul is saying in this passage. Not that I've already obtained this, but I press on. As you start the new year, traditional academic year, as all of these students now converge on all the other students that have been here all summer, uh, may you live that kind of faith with that kind of abandon and with that kind of passion. Let's pray. Father, with a sense of wonder, you have called us to be people of this time and this place. Uh, make us worthy. Instill in us courage and teach us day in and day out to resemble Christ in our humility as we seek to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Go with God. Amen.